Good to hear you singing and making up some of the empty seats this morning. Empty seats but full hearts, that's good. If you turn again to 1 Thessalonians, continuing our late summer hiatus in our studies in Romans and taking a, I don't know, 30,000 foot overview of Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians. I want to read today not the whole of the chapter, but the opening portion of chapter 4. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, with also given unto us His Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye make walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Well, amen. We'll end a reading in verse 12, again, trusting the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. Let's do bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come today rejoicing again to join together with those of like precious faith, to lift corporate praise to a God who is worthy of worship, to be able to sing of a love unknown, a love that to our fallen nature and experience would seem unnatural. From what country is such love as this? And yet you have bestowed that love upon us. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Well, we've read today a portion that speaks of an increasing loveliness among your people. And so we pray that you will give us the help of your Spirit even as this very passage so plainly puts before us the things that are here are not things that we can stir up by the flesh, but by the striving of Your Spirit, by the instruction of Your Word, we might truly grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that You will do that work. You will continue and increase that work among us even in these moments that we share now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as we've said, we are putting our studies in Romans to a temporary hiatus for these late summer weeks. And coming to the epistles, I say that in the plural, I'm not positive, but anticipating at least, coming over into 2 Thessalonians as well. We're racing along, so obviously no need for time in every detail. But as we come to look at this epistle in particular, we have found, as we've said before, particularly often repeating that little trio of graces we find in chapter 1, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope, that in this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is just presenting basic Christianity. He's come to them, and as we come today, as we'll see in a moment, to a point of transition in the book, but in that opening chapter, we see Paul speaking of the gospel, that it came to them, They received it, it went out from them. And those are pieces of basic Christianity. We came to chapter 2 and we found there that there there are four metaphors that Paul uses of himself with regard to his own ministry in their midst. He's a steward. He has received something that he's entrusted with, he must be faithful to. He sees himself as a mother to them, as a father to them, and as a herald And in those things we see those overriding truths of truth and love. And how much that should impact all of ministry. And last week in chapter 3, we focused our thoughts around the three words, tribulations, endurance, and fruitfulness. And last week you'll recall that we spent a little time in an introduction contrasting our day with the days of the first century And yet having to pause and recognize that our times are becoming more and more like the times of the first century. Those of us with some maturity, we shall say, in our midst, can easily and rightfully say that the nation, the culture, the society that we live in today is not the same as the one in which we were raised and into which we were born Our days are more and more like the days of the first century. And yet still those transitions take place. We pray for grace in navigating such transitions, for wisdom in discerning the gospel and the obligations of the gospel in such a culture as ours is becoming. But when we come to the verses we've read today, there's no contrast at all. The things, the truths, the circumstances, the problems, the temptations that Paul describes to the Thessalonians in the verses we've read today are not different today than they were then. They weren't different then than they are today. We come today, we might say, to timeless Christian instruction. And so I want to look at this opening portion of chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 4 familiar with the break in paragraph where we stopped our reading, the last paragraph of this chapter and the opening paragraph of the fifth chapter are some of the most familiar and perhaps some of the most important portions of the New Testament at least with regard to the prophetic scriptures and we'll take some overview I trust of those as well. But as we come to this portion of the epistle, chapter 4, there's an obvious break in Paul's thought. In chapters 1 to 3, he's really reviewed 
what the Thessalonians knew of his time with them, of his experience with them, of the type of ministry he engaged in. And of course, that's in response to some obvious attacks, charges that have been brought against Paul. But also we've seen the encouragement that he's shown in them as the evidences of grace were manifest in their lives. He could even say that striking phrase in chapter 1, knowing, beloved of God, your election. And so he's writing to a people that he has seen the hand of God working in them. And so in those opening chapters, there's just a looking back, as it were, a review of the things they'd experienced together. But as we come to chapter 4, there's an obvious transition. It begins now some specific instruction. It's possible, we don't have it as explicitly as we do in 1 Corinthians, that he's replying to questions. Uh, You remember in Corinthians, once you get to a certain point in the first book, he opens several little sections, now concerning such and such. Where have you wrote unto me? Now concerning such and such. He's responding to their questions. You remember, we talked then about how late in 1 Corinthians he starts that. You've written to ask me these questions. Before I deal with those questions, let me write to you about some things we've learned of you and some problems that need to be addressed. Well, we don't have that type of specific indicator point by point, but it seems evident that there were questions they had, certainly about those that have died before the coming of Christ. And he says he doesn't want them to be ignorant of that, so he's responding But other things, many suggest, are just normal Christian instruction and perhaps things that Paul chooses to write upon based on Timothy's report to him after his visit. The encouraging visit that he had. Nonetheless, instruction that is necessary for these Thessalonians and, well, necessary for us as well. So I want to look again, the sweeping overview pace that we're taking at these verses that we've read, and just look at them under these three headings, because I think you'll find that the admonitions Paul gives here can be put neatly together under these three headings, that these Thessalonians ought to please God, they ought to control themselves, and they ought to love one another. And one of the things that we'll see throughout is a lot of what Paul says here isn't news. And he says, you know these things. You're already doing these things. But I want to charge you to increase more and more. So let us look at these verses that we've read today, again under those headings. Firstly, he writes to them that they ought to please God. Now, quite frankly, this is a topic and a phrase that perhaps would be worthy of all of our attention today. I thought of that in coming to this chapter, but that would certainly break up the overview and, well, start infringing on Romans again this fall. But the whole theme of sanctification. I remember a message once in my youth that was brought And it was one of those things that sticks in your mind, maybe after some of the particulars of the message are gone. But young people in particular are often wrestling and questioning, what's God's will for my life? You know, should I be a dentist or an architect? Should I be a ditch digger or a painter? Whatever. Well, here's a great text for that. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification 
whatever vocation you find that the Lord directs you into, whatever vocation you have interest in and strengths for and would choose to follow, that in a sense is the, the secondary stuff. The primary stuff is sanctification, growth in grace, greater likeness unto Christ. And as Paul writes these words to them, notice how he phrases them. He says, we exhort you by the Lord Jesus. Same way in which he spoke in that opening three chapters of his ministry to them. You receive this not as it is the word of men, but as it is the word of God. So he's exhorting them, not in a casual way, not in a way that doesn't matter, not in a way that they can either take or leave. He engages them with authority. He engages them even with the language of commandments, verse 2. You know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And so we could underscore here quite plainly that sanctification is not a, an option that some justified believers will choose to take up and other justified believers will choose to ignore and just continue on with their former lives. Oh, this is reality. We know, and as we study our understanding of doctrinal truth, our justification doesn't rely upon our sanctification. It's not dependent upon our sanctification. It isn't infused or fused together with our sanctification. But sanctification is the inevitable result of justification. The work of God in us invariably follows that work of God for us. And of course these are distinctions that I trust we know and are familiar and our catechism informs us of from Scripture. But I want to focus in this opening portion about the way he phrases it that you might please God. That we might please God. When Paul spoke in that second chapter, he used the metaphors as we've seen, those of stewardship and of herald with regard to the truth, the gospel that he's entrusted with, but that of a nursing mother and of a, a loving, guiding father with regard to these Thessalonian believers. And if we could understand and apply even that phrase in that context, that familiar, that biblical context of the family, the family of God, think of the truth that is illustrated there. As we saw two weeks ago, the child in the home, in a proper loving home, finds in that home, finds in those parents, love and acceptance that is unconditional. There's nothing that cuts them off and sets them outside of that home. They belong. They're the children of this mother and father. They are flesh and blood. They are owned. Their title is there. And it's from that place of security and acceptance that the father would come alongside and say, now, this is the way this family does things. 
And so the obligations of that community are built upon the securities and the acceptance and the love of that community. And if you see how Paul then phrases it here, he said, I want to speak to you about some things about how we ought to walk. And again, remember that picture in Scripture. Leon Morris, I believe, I've tried to quote often in that regard, walking. It has the picture of unspectacular but steady progress. That's our pilgrimage. That's growth in grace. There may be seasons of quick growth. I think I heard a couple of mothers after camp talking about, maybe it was my own child talking about her children, coming into an age where they're going to start out growing their clothes before they wear them out. I had that happen once in the seventh grade. I I outgrew a pair of tennis shoes before I wore them out. If you saw the wear and tear I put on tennis shoes in the seventh grade, you say, wow, those feet were moving. And I don't mean moving, I mean moving. Um, But there are seasons of accelerated growth. There may be points in life where the Lord does a, a, a drastic work that we're convinced of something we haven't seen before. We're convicted of something we need to repent of and forsake forever. But yet, by and large... It's, it's a walk. Steady, if unspectacular, progress. And Paul says this walking puts it before us in this phraseology of pleasing God. And I say, what a picture for growth in grace. The family. The natural desire of a child to please the ones who have provided everything. Those that provide security, warmth, shelter, food, love. So it is with the child of God. God has infinitely provided acceptance. Our Savior Exalted and ascended has gone to prepare a place for us. I often have taken, I'm sure I've shared this before, but taken with the phrase of our Lord. Here He's going to ascend in our nature to the presence of God. And in that mystery of His person, in our nature, we'll be engaged in preparing a place for us but to please God. What a natural, what a logical extension of being purchased by God. I love the phrase we read this morning of knowing God and then the pause rather being known of God. Recognized. Special acknowledgement, that biblical picture of knowledge. That we might please God. And notice what he says in verse 8. He therefore that despiseth. He's given here commandments which we come to shortly. He's given basic truths. And he says for those that despise this. They're not despising 
man. They're not despising me, this preacher, this bondage preacher. They're despising God. And of course, the things he's going to deal with there are so evident. I mean, they're, they're clear statements of the ten words in those ten commandments placed in the ark. To despise that instruction, to fight against it, is not fighting against Paul. It's fighting against God. And so here, I don't think we should shrink back from that perspective of growing in grace, of forsaking sin, of actively pursuing righteousness as a bondage, as a legal spirit. They can be preached in that way. Sadly, there are many well-meaning Christians that struggle under what we speak of as bondage preaching. But here, the terminology Paul uses to these Thessalonians that he rejoices to see have evidence of grace. Let us walk so as to please God. That child walking with the Father. The joy. And even that mature aspect we've looked at in the past of the fear of God. Yeah, the immature stuff is there. Fear of punishment. But the mature side of that, to fear anything marring that relationship, anything coming between, the desire is there to please the one who is so graciously, we might say in the illustration of natural parents, that grace maybe hasn't been involved. They were naturally born it's always a precious thing when you speak about adoption those that were purely chosen but here to reflect the very nature character of the one that has so chosen us but we come to our second little summary of these verses we've read today Obviously, so much more said on the theme of sanctification, but the perspective of pleasing God. But as we say, secondly, to control yourselves. Paul says from verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Paul obviously focuses here on a particular context of moral purity and moral sin. I was taken back in reading the commentaries on this. Several uh, found it worthy or appropriate to quote various historians with regard to the moral context of the first century, the Greco-Roman world. And it's staggering indeed. We're tempted at times to think, well, things have never been as bad as they are now. Well, study history a little bit. 
they've been pretty bad. Um, one of the papers that was read this last week at the faculty summit I attended was on the subject of melancholy. And uh, the reader paused to speak about men in various vocations, philosophers, historians. He said it's not uncommon to find among these people, and this is outside of the context of believing versus, in many ways, the unbelieving philosophers and so forth out there. But a melancholy pervades because the effects of sin pervade our history. The fall is evident. Well, here, Paul comes and speaks to a congregation that live in the context of that first century with rampant immorality. And one of the pieces of this, I think that should be, we should become more and more mindful of, is that in those days, the whole spectrum, if you will, of moral sins were not just sins that actually happened, they were going on, as has been true in all history, but they were openly committed, they were even sanctioned. Well, guess what? Our culture has come to that point where there is no shame. Borrow Jeremiah's phrase, which sadly is uttered with regard to God's people, Israel. Neither could they blush. Blushing is a good thing. It shows a healthy conscience. But here, these are surrounded by those for whom These sins were inconsequential. They didn't matter. They're openly paraded. Forgive my reference here. Those of you that know me, if I'm free and home in an evening, I like to watch Wheel of Fortune. It's amazing to me It's not surprising, but if you just stop and think about it, when they introduce the contestants, you get a little bit about their background, their circumstances. Well, yeah, you see a little bit of our culture. Circumstances that, well, in the days of my youth, would have probably just been omitted in the biographical sketch when they were introduced on a national televised broadcast. You, oh, you've got three kids. They're 15, 12, and, and, and 9. How long have you been married? Uh, uh, three years. Well, that would have kind of not come up. Or maybe Pat Sajak would have said, now, hang on a minute, what did you say? Let me do the math here. Now, that doesn't happen. And it's not even, I I don't put that on my card. There may be various circumstances all surrounding these things we know. But culture not only accepts it, happy to promote these things. And we live in that culture. And so in many ways, any external encouragements against immorality are gone. We even have now the increasing, can we use the word bombardment, of the promotion of not merely immorality, but perversion. 
And in a context like that, is it any wonder then that Paul, writing to a church in which he's encouraged, says, be mindful. The world puts all this out as normal, as acceptable. But we know it isn't. And so guard yourselves. Control yourselves, he says. He uses lots of terminology that's striking. We have translated in the authorized version, the lust of concupiscence. That's a pretty big word. RSV translates a phrase, the passion of lust. It's almost redundant. The lust of lust. Overmastering feeling. Pathos is there. Epithumia, a word we've seen often. Lust will combine these two, just forcefully say, don't surrender to your desires. There's a lawful expression of such things. But our world promotes and even highlights the unlawful expression of these things. And Paul doesn't write something to these dear brothers that he doesn't hold upon himself. Remember his language elsewhere. He said of himself, I keep under my body. And so controlling ourselves. He speaks of going beyond and defrauding one another. The word for going beyond just has the idea of crossing a boundary. And folks, that, that context, the truth underneath that, has applications everywhere. Crossing a boundary. Not taking from someone else that which doesn't belong to us. Or giving of ourselves something that doesn't belong to that other person. And how many ways can we and does our society defraud others every day? Walking, if you will, the main street of life. Defrauding is going on constantly. That's in the open. Paul here speaks about that, taking advantage of another in that way. Note again the reality of this command. Despising this is despising God. It sobers me when sections of the church today, and I understand the rightful reaction against the pharisaical presentation of rules. But it saddens me that in the absence of good teaching on justification, a reactionary spirit has gone and it's almost there's a rejection of any teaching, any admonition on sanctification. Rather, we need to understand the truth with regard to both. What Paul says here, and I think we can say a hearty amen as our context has become so similar. Control yourselves. But he says finally, not merely for us to please God, to control ourselves, but then to love one another. Verse 9, but as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, And I love the next phrase. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. The word here, taught of God, it's the only time it occurs in the New Testament. It 
it's clearly evident in other passages, the leading of the Spirit, all of these things. But just to say it so plainly, so directly, I don't really need to write this to you. You know this yourselves. You're taught of God, this truth, to love one another. And he says here, and indeed ye do it toward, verse 10, all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. What a picture of sanctification. I had a conversation this week with one of the brothers at the faculty summit. It's a dear brother, actually. He's a Wesleyan. I remarked some years ago that I was with one of my other colleagues from Geneva and we were at the summit and the dispensationalists that make up the large majority of these particular schools that are represented, they're all kind of there together we're eating lunch and this one table we had the four of us, two open Calvinists and two open Arminians and we were having a great time and the other guys were like, can we sit with them? You know, scratching her heads a little bit. But I made a statement in that particular lunch that one of these brothers asked me about this week. I mean, this has been more than a decade ago that I made this statement. But I made this statement to his dad, actually, in part of our conversation. And I think he had kind of started speaking to another person. So he's got only half an ear that's back toward me. But I made the statement to his father, I break every one of the Ten Commandments every day. After we picked him up off the floor and got the smelling salts going, um, you know, we fleshed that out a little bit. The spirituality of the law of God. If God's law is rightly summarized, and it is, and that I am to perfectly love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm to perfectly love my neighbor as myself, and what does loving your neighbor look like? Well, you honor your parents, you don't kill, you don't steal, and you go on down. Then I understand the spiritual nature of the law of God, then I'm guilty of transgressing that law daily because I fail to perfectly love. Now this brother came to me this week and he said, well Reggie, with some understanding, I've met you a few times, I know you, I seem to get some idea of what you're like. I don't see you as living a licentious life and uh, all of this stuff. How do you pastorally apply that? And I said, well, we pastorally apply that, obviously with an understanding underneath that of the active obedience of Christ. He has undertaken that same covenant in my place. He has perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. And as my transgressions of that law were counted as his, and he bore their penalty, the passive obedience, we call it. So his fulfillment of that, has been imputed to me. His active obedience, as we call it. So I have the assurance of acceptance. And so while I push that law away as a covenant of works, I can run in the way of His commandments as a rule of life. And in pastorally applying that then, there's a humility that comes. I understand that 
Daily I fall short. So I'm daily penitent. But I'm also daily faithful. I by faith recognize that underneath is that perfect righteousness. That full acceptance. And I can know something as we find in Romans 8. A little prelude to where we come in Romans. Romans 8. What's it open with? There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Full acceptance. Assurance. But what's also in the middle of Romans 8? We groan. We groan within ourselves waiting for another day. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And so we have this this joyous, full acceptance, and yet this pilgrimage where we're groaning, waiting for the day in which we will finally love Him with an unsinning heart. And I said, pastorally, to have assurance and groaning brought together, that's how we apply the spirituality of the law of God. Some good, sorry, fellowship with a a Wesleyan to share there. But so what does Paul say here then? How does he flesh this out in our loving one another? He says, in that increasing more and more in that which he knows they already have. Verse 11, and many suggest, and I think it's right that you get a little preview here of three categories of people in Thessalonica that... He needs to address. But he says here that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. These are interesting phrases. That you study to be quiet. It might be a library verse to hang somewhere, but then again, I guess we would invert it. You be quiet in order to study or at least let the other guy study. But the terms underneath here are striking. Listen to how Phillips, in his paraphrase, translates it. Be ambitious about not being ambitious. That's an interesting perspective. Here's another paraphrase. Seek restlessly to be still. But yet, that's what Paul is saying. Maybe we can tweak those paraphrases and put it this way. Be ambitious. Be restless. Be zealous about living calmly. There's that word we've hit a lot the last couple years. Calm. In the face of this changing, radically changing culture, That we as a people of God not freak out. Not send any direct or even subliminal messages to say, oh no, their gods are winning. That we're ambitious. We're restless about being calm. I'll share in a moment the three words William Hendrickson uses to categorize these people. But secondly, he says the phrase here, be engaged in your own affairs. There's life. 
There's normal life in this pilgrim journey that you are to be engaged in. One of the struggles in Thessalonica, it applies to this one and to the third one. It seems that there was a a faction at least within Thessalonica that were caught up with their eschatological expectations and they had stopped working. It's almost like the uh, early Seventh-day Adventists that had set the date for the Lord's return. Was it 1844? My church history is failing me now. They called it the embarrassment of 44, I think. And then they recalculated and had one more year and then that didn't come. And so, anyway. The prophecy experts said, well, you know, we're getting raptured out of here in no time, so I'm going to quit and not go to work anymore and start getting hungry and well, you start doing like we did last night. Show up at somebody's house unannounced for dinner. Paul's going to have to deal with that faction in Thessalonica, but to be engaged in your own affairs. Not to be the person that has to have hands on everybody else's affairs. A busybody. And then he says to work with your own hands. There he gets to that other faction. What had Paul done in Thessalonica when he could have been chargeable to them? It's entirely appropriate and scriptural that those that minister the gospel live of the gospel, we find. But no, instead, he said, I'm not going to be chargeable. God's not going to pull me back from this boasting in any of the churches of Achaia. There's too too many ways in which it can be understood. No offerings for the preacher. Work with your own hands. William Hendrickson turns the phrase with regard to these three statements. The fanatics, the busybodies, and the loafers. Every church has them. Uh, Hendrickson pastored a really large church. It's more comfortable making a statement like that, I guess, for him. We get this small and say, well, no, every church, which, which, okay. But here's his concern. These are, these are natural tendencies where in our flesh we can fail. And outworking, and notice this, these three things he speaks about, and again, I love that one, be ambitious about living calmly. The outworking of these things, the fanatic who's always chasing the new thing, the busybody, the loafer, There's something that they're lacking. There's something that needs to increase so these decrease. And of course, that's love. And Paul knows they already have it. Increase in that. Let it abound more and more. And then he says, verse 12, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. Can I just underscore again here something of our walking, of our testimony to those that are without? I highlighted last week or so, again, that it's in Romans 1, that chapter that has that catalog of sin and perversion. It was so evident in the very nations to which Paul was writing. And his mindset was, I'm a debtor to 
the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise, I'm a debtor. To be able to look at the perverse in our culture and approach them from the posture of a debtor. The self-righteousness, the immediate offensiveness that gives no opportunity for dialogue and for presenting Christ was not Paul's posture. He was a debtor. And you could think of the Thessalonians, named the city in the first century, saved out of those awful lifestyles. The Corinthians are told such were some of you. And their mindset would be, well, forget these people. We're different. We're better than them now. And let it impact how they interact with those people. Treat them like, well, those people owe me something. Instead of me owing them something. It can even come to the point of impacting how honestly we deal with them. Folks, the privilege of having a testimony among those that are outside of the body. Permit me again a rare personal illustration, but um, in our extensive remodel a few years ago, I had to go to Poindexter Lumber and order a lot of custom-made molding to match some pretty old molding. And it was a big order, and the fellow's talking to me, okay, okay. And then he says, who, who, who are you working with? Who's your contractor? I said, uh, John Yarborough. The whole room changed. Oh, let me put the red carpet out for you. You need anything else? You want something to drink? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Well, now there's a testimony of dealing honestly with them that are without. You know, am I going to go spend a day making all this and you're not going to show up? Are you going to leave me hanging for this? Oh, honestly, toward them that are without. Somehow I think sometimes we as conservative Christians that live quite differently than those in that ungodly world that surrounds us, could be encouraged in a better way to live honestly, humbly toward them that are without. Well, again, we race through giant phrases and texts. But what Paul puts before them a daily, a daily model for us. Please, God, control yourselves. Love one another. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask that You would give us the grace and help of Your Spirit to take up these, can we say quite obvious, truths And yet how often are we most needy in being reminded of the obvious. And so take up this living word. Write it on our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.